please. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And we're going to take a look tonight at a theme, at a, at a topic that I think works well with what Pastor Will has made for our, our, has put out for our goal, our vision this year. You can see it on the screen behind me, the word together. And in fact, Ephesians 4 verses 12 and 13 are listed there. Those are a couple of the verses that we will look at tonight. But the idea of being together, focusing tonight on this theme of unity. Unity among believers and what is required for unity, the building blocks, if you will, what makes it possible for a group of very different people from very different backgrounds, very different walks of life, different day-to-day activities, different likes and dislikes, different preferences, all of those things going on in the background. How can a group of people like that do anything together? And yet in Scripture, as we'll see tonight, we're commanded to do that. But God doesn't just say, be unified and go forth and conquer without giving us some instruction and some help and some guidance on how to accomplish that. So tonight, my goal is that we'll be able to look at these truths here from Ephesians 4 together and get some help with this idea of unity, which we, of course, as we'll see tonight, have been called to do. The book of Ephesians, of course, has six chapters. If you were to split the book into two parts, chapters 1, 2, and 3, a lot of Bible scholars would say that the first half of the book of Ephesians is more of a theological um, few chapters, where there's a lot of instruction given, a lot of background laid by the Apostle Paul as he was instructing a church, a real live church in the city of Ephesus, how they as a church body were supposed to live and how they were supposed to work together and what they should be accomplishing for the Lord. So chapters 1, 2, and 3, he lays the background, he lays the foundation for chapters 4, 5, and 6, which are much more practical, much more instructional, much more of a so then how should we live based on the truths that are presented in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Obviously, for sake of time tonight, there's no way to cover all of chapters 1, 2, and 3. So if we kind of were to do a brief synopsis in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, of course, through the leading of the Holy Ghost as he was writing, was reminding these believers of everything that they had been given through Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, he reminds them in verses 3 through 6 that they were chosen before the foundation of the world by God the Father to be His children. In verses 7 through 12, reminded that they were redeemed or bought through the blood of of Jesus Christ. Verses 13 and 14, that they were sealed by the Holy Spirit, that that was, in essence, a down payment of what they could look forward to for eternity, an inheritance that could not be taken from them. In chapter 2, he talks about their old condition being dead in their trespasses and sins. And as he was preaching and writing, in this case, teaching these group of believers in Ephesus a couple of thousand years ago, Of course, God is the author here. He was instructing us today in our church right now as well. We are and were just like these believers before they came to know Christ. We too were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were dead. We had no life, spiritually speaking, because we did not have 
true life, which is only found through a relationship with God. So he tells them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, reminding them of their condition apart from God, but then in the next several verses, talking about now they are brought to life. They've been given new life through what Jesus Christ had done for them. In fact, in the last part of chapter 2 and verses 11 through 22, he even talks about how that new life brings reconciliation between them as individuals and God, but also on a human level between Jews and Gentiles, who humanly speaking were at odds throughout the course of history. And yet this relationship with Christ was the means, the foundation by which they could work together. And he starts to lay the foundation for the topic that we're going to talk about tonight, which is unity in Christ. In chapter number 3, Paul goes into the, the mystery, he calls it, of the church, of this relationship between Christ and His church and how this is supposed to function and how this is supposed to work. And again, we don't have time to dive into all of that here tonight, but just kind of laying the background here as we get up closer to chapter number 4. He gets to the end of chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, is a recorded prayer from the Apostle Paul that he prayed to God on behalf of the people there at Ephesus. He says, For this cause, verse 14 of chapter 3, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, talking to this group of believers in Ephesus, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depths and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Here the Apostle Paul is praying that these people would be able to understand things that he even says in his prayer, past knowledge, past understanding. He said there in verse number 19, to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. How can these people do that apart from God supernaturally working in them and through them? And he says to be filled with the fullness of God. He gets into chapter 4, verse number 1. Now he starts to exhort, to challenge, to encourage them to do things based on the truth that he just presented to them in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Verse 2, with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity, there's that word, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Tonight what we're going to look at for the next few minutes is what I would call the building blocks that are necessary for this group of believers in Ephesus, but in our case, for this group of believers today here in Houston at Arise, to have the unity that God desires us to have so that we can accomplish the purpose and the task that God has called us to do. He told these believers in verse number 1 that they were to walk worthy 
of the vocation wherewith they are called. And he notes here in verse 3 that this unity of spirit is required for this to happen. So foundationally, very first and foremost, the most important building block, if you will. This is the first layer of the, of the building, if we want to use that analogy. The foundational structure is that unity requires a foundation that is built in a pursuit of Christ. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6 in chapter 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are calling in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul was praying that Christ would dwell, verse 17, in their hearts by faith, and you would be rooted and grounded in love. In verse number 16, he said that, that God would grant them according to the rich of His glory to be strengthened in might by the Spirit of the inner man. He was praying that they would be pursuing, that they would be grounded in their relationship with God. For us to have unity, we have to recognize that our focus must be on something that is outside of ourselves. We're a very diverse group of people. Every church body throughout history is a very diverse group of people. There are no two people that are exactly alike. God has made us to be unique individuals. He's given us different likes and dislikes and passions and things that we are deeply concerned for where other people might go, well, that really doesn't matter to me at all. Here in our context and in our culture, we have so many different things that we can get our attentions on that cause us to be different. And that's okay. That's a good thing. But for us to be able to pursue uh, or to, to fulfill the vocation or the task that God has called us to do to impact our world for Him, we must have unity. It works the same way in a family. If the husband and the wife are not on the same page, if there is a lot of strife and a lot of bickering and arguing and two individual people pulling their own ways, then that family does not function the way that God desired for it to function. In a church, in a body of believers like this, if we have a bunch of people pulling in different ways and all of us are focused on what is important to us as individuals, then we are missing the bigger picture of what God has called us to do to impact our neighborhood and our city for Christ. We are so much more able, more, more, more powerful through, the, through what God has gifted each one of us to do if we put those things together and pull together. But it has to start with a pursuit of Christ. He says there's one body, one spirit, even as you are called in hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He keeps coming back to this idea of one God, one Father. And this needs to be the first and foremost foundational focus for this group of believers, if they are to achieve unity that God has called them to have. We have to pursue Christ's likeness first and foremost as individuals. I must individually pursue Christ. You must individually pursue Christ. This can't be something that our pastor desires that we do and that's going to be good enough. We have to individually pursue Christ. God has given each one of us as believers the means that we need to draw nigh to Him, to draw close to Him. He's given us His Word. He's given us access to Him in prayer. We can't rely on coming to church on Sunday or Wednesday as going to be good enough. We have to pursue God outside of those times. 
And we have to be committed in this relationship as individuals. Because if we will individually pursue God, and then other people in the body individually pursue God, and others individually pursue God, if all of us as individuals are pursuing the same person, the same relationship, pointing towards the same target, then naturally that unity will start to be formed. Then naturally that pulling together begins to take place. We need to pursue Christ as individuals, but for those of you who are married, you need to pursue Christ in your marriage, in your family, in your home, pursuing Christ together. Because a church is made up of individuals, it's made up of families, and so we, if we are to have success as a church body, being unified for Christ, it's got to start at our individual level and in our homes. And so the question for each of us tonight is, are we pursuing Christ the way that He desires for us to, the way the Apostle Paul was urging these believers to do in Ephesians chapter number 4. First, so the first thing here, this foundation, is that there needs to be a pursuit of Christ in order for unity to take place. The second thing, we're actually going to back up a couple of verses here to verse number 2. Unity requires death to self. Paul says in verse 1 that we are to walk worthy of the vocation with we are called. And then he kind of describes what that looks like. He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Lowliness or humility is a foundational Christian virtue. Humility, I kind of think of it as a description of that being having an accurate view of myself based on an accurate view of who Christ is, or seeing myself the way that God sees me. When God looks at me, what does He see? Well, He described that in Romans, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, where He talks about how all of the people who were of Jewish descent were sinful and deserving of punishment. All the people of Gentile descent were sinful and deserving of punishment. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he culminates by saying, all have sinned. He doesn't leave anybody out. Nobody's on the fringe. Nobody's left out. All are included in being in sin. So when God looks at me, he sees a sinner because that's what I am. And so seeing myself the way that God sees me, I have to understand that I'm a sinner. But the beauty of the gospel is that if we've accepted Christ, when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. But for us to understand and to be able to achieve unity as a body, we must have humility. Seeing ourselves the way that God sees me. If I look at myself how God sees me, all I can do, all I have to glory in, if you will, all I have to be proud of, if you will, is what Christ has done for me. I don't have anything of my own to, to, to glory in or to lift myself up over. Anything that I can achieve and accomplish is through the strength that God has given me. Anything good that I have done is God's strength through me, is God's goodness through me. So when I see myself the way that God sees me, there's no room for pride. There's no room for lifting ourselves up and putting ourselves on a pedestal and looking down at the people around us because of how great we are. Because when God looks at you and me, it's, it's a level playing field. There's there's really no criteria that he's judging based off of other than what have you done with Jesus Christ? What have you done with that gift? You are either 
in Christ or you are not. God isn't concerned about how tall or good-looking or financially wealthy or physically healthy or any of the other things that we sort of judge ourselves by as human beings. God's not worried about those things. Those are not important to Him the way that we make them important to ourselves. We will spend eternity with God or not based on what we have done with Christ. So he says here in verse number 2 that with all lowliness, humility, recognizing who we are in God's eyes. James chapter 4 verse 6 that says that God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, this is a familiar passage because we've just gotten, or we've just been studying the uh, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes in Wednesday night. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are humble people for theirs that passage said, is the kingdom of heaven. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says, Let this mind be in you. Well, what mind is that? Which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here Christ is our ultimate example of humility. He is God, and He was willing to put Himself in the form of man, it says there in that passage. And not just to take on the physical limitations of tired and fatigue and hunger and thirst and all of the sort of hardships of being a human being here on this earth, but it says he take it, took it a big step further. It says he humbled himself even further than that, was willing to go to the cross for you and for me to suffer what had to have been one of the most humiliating ways for a human to die. And he did that for you and me because he chose to, because he loves us. Unity requires a death to self, which begins with humility, but it goes on. There's another word there in verse number two. It says with lowliness and meekness or gentleness. I've heard this described as strength under control. You probably, if you have maybe young children in your house or you've been around them, you know that obviously little kids come with very differing personalities. And even amongst sibling groups, there can be very differing personalities. You have some children who are very laid back and calm, and it seems like they are under control at least most of the time. And you might have a sibling who's directly older or younger than them that is the complete opposite and is running all over the place and breaking things and is loud and is obnoxious and all of the things that make life a little bit more interesting, shall we say. One phrase that we're familiar with in our house from time to time is the phrase of being a bull in a china shop. And you've probably heard that as well. And we're trying to train our children that in our house, we don't just go running around throwing things, banging off of walls and beds and couches. My kids like to run and leap and jump with all their weight onto couches. They like to hop up on the coffee table and leap onto the couch. And we're trying to train that out of them. The idea of a bull in a china shop, a bull is a very strong animal. You and I would lose every time in tug of war with a bull. You put that bull in a china shop, and we obviously the phrase is, exists because of what we all know would happen. There would be mass destruction, mass chaos, because that bull has tremendous strength, but it 
doesn't have the ability to control that strength the way that it would be necessary not to destroy all the fine dishes in China that's in that shop. The idea of meekness is not the idea of being weak and incapable and just unable to accomplish anything. It's the idea of taking the strength of, say, a bull, for example, but having the control to be able to use it when it's appropriate, to use it when it's necessary, to use it when it's beneficial, but to take that strength and to control it and to be used and harnessed for good. The Apostle Paul says that we as believers, we're not supposed to just be weak, wallflower type of people who just sit back all the time and just sort of let life happen to us. That's not what he's saying to do here. He's saying we should be humble, a humility that comes from our relationship with Christ. We should be meek, but that is strength that is controlled, not necessarily by us, by our, our willpower, but a strength that's controlled by the Spirit's power. It's strength that's controlled through that relationship with God, which is foundational for our pursuit of unity. He says that we are to be meek, Spirit-controlled. Galatians chapter 5, verse 23 points out meekness as one of the specific fruits of the Spirit, the fruit that is born out in the life of a believer who is pursuing a relationship with God. Meekness is one of those fruits. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. The last word of that verse is the next word in verse, uh, verse 2 of chapter 4, with lowliness and meekness with long-suffering. Long-suffering can be defined as patience, but it's more than just patience. It's more the idea of a long, I've heard it described as a long fuse, but it's really, it's intentional patience. It's patience on purpose. It's patience when, humanly speaking, we've gone past the point of wanting to be patient anymore. It's patience when there's no real reason in our minds to be patient anymore. He says we are to be long-suffering, patient with the people around us, patient with the people in our families, patient with the other believers in our church. One of the ways to destroy unity is to get impatient with the people around us that God has put into our lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 says that we are to be patient toward all men. Now, unfortunately, Paul included the two words, all men. It would have been okay if he just said, some and let us sort of define what some meant. <laughs> Pick and choose the people we got to be long-suffering or patient towards. That'd be all right. Pick the people I like, I'll be patient with you. People I don't, sorry, you're out. But God didn't give us that option. He said we're to be patient, long-suffering toward all men. It says lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and then one more word there, forbearing, and the phrase forbearing one another in love. This is the idea of showing tolerance for one another. Tolerance toward one another in love. Humility, gentleness, and patience are reflect reflected in a forbearing or a tolerant love. Not tolerance in the way of, oh, you can just do whatever you want. You could sin. You could, you could, you could do 
anything you desire and I'm going to tolerate it. I'm going to sort of push it to the side and ignore it. But the idea of toler tolerating and, and really helping someone who is struggling, someone who is trying to work through something, someone who is working on, say, their walk with the Lord and they fall and they do something wrong, but this is a person you come alongside and you, you help, you forbear, you, you, you bring them along with you. It's not leaving people to, to die in the back, so to speak. It's helping the wounded, helping the weak, and bringing, forbearing, bringing them alongside. This aspect of humility, lowliness, the word is there in verse 2, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearance. These are the next, if we were to sort of bundle them all together, this idea of dying to self. Is our next building block. We have a pursuit of a relationship with Christ as first and foremost. Next, that we are to die to self in these four key ways. And then the third one, if we jump down to verse number 7, Paul gets into a real practical, I guess, means for unity, if you will. And he starts talking about the gifts that God has given to us as believers. Unity requires the humble use of our gifts for Christ and for others. Now there are a couple of passages in Scripture that deal with spiritual gifts. One of them is here. Another one is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We don't have time to get into some deep study on this here tonight. But understanding the purpose of this and how it fits into this idea of unity in a body of believers. He says, verse 7, "...but unto every one of us is given grace." according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that he, uh, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descendeth is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect, that word there is talking about mature, spiritually mature, man, and unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Talking about spiritual gifts and how God has uniquely blessed different people with different gifts and abilities for the purpose of the strengthening of the body. He says in verse number 7 that these gifts are unique. He says, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. God has uniquely gifted each individual to accomplish what He wants that individual to accomplish. In other words, God has equipped each of you, He's equipped me to do exactly what He's called you or me to do. He hasn't gifted me to do what He's called you to do, and vice versa. And we need to understand that each one of us, God has a plan and a role for, a part for us to play, if you will, 
in the overarching purpose of what he's trying to accomplish. In the bigger picture, in the, the world at large, but more specifically in our body as a church, God has called one person to be the main, the senior pastor here. It's not me, it's not you. And God has gifted that person to be our pastor. So it's not our job, and we would be doing a disservice to this body if you or me were to try to somehow supplant the man that God has called to do that and sort of take that role on ourselves. We think about it in a business context. You're a part of a company. You play a role, a part. You have a job you were hired to do. Most of you were not hired to be the owner or the CEO, but you were hired to play a specific role, and you were given responsibilities that if you don't perform, if you don't do well, first you'll probably be fired, but secondly, it would be to the detriment of that company. You were brought there for a purpose and for a reason. And hopefully you were trained and given what you needed, the resources to accomplish those tasks. In a family, God created it to function best when the husband functions according to the roles and responsibilities God gave him and the wife functions according to the roles and responsibilities that God gave her and then the children underneath of them. But what starts to mess it up is when we look around and go, well, I would rather have that job, or I would rather do this, or I don't really like this job that I've been given over here. I'd rather have this person's thing or that person's thing, whereas God has given you and He's given me a specific job to do and a unique set of gifts to accomplish that. And when we get outside of the role that God has called us, when we start pursuing things God didn't intend for us, then it messes up the unity, it slows down the purpose. It gets sand in the gears, if you will, of what God is trying to accomplish. God has uniquely gifted each one of us to do what He would have us to do. It says there in verse 7 that He has given us grace. These gifts are God's grace, one aspect of God's grace toward us. They were given to us freely. We don't deserve them. We did not work to earn them. And yet God has given us these things so that we can serve Him. They're not based in anything that we have done. They're unmerited. They're undeserved. We jump ahead to verse number 11. We touched on this a second ago, but these gifts are varied. You look at verse 11. He has different roles here that he says. He says some are apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. These are different roles with different responsibilities that God was giving to these people in this early church. And God gave them these gifts for different purposes. Now, the main purpose for those particular people, it tells them in verse number 12, for the, He gave them all of those things, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers, for the perfecting or the maturing of the saints. That's you and me. That's the people who sit under the ministry of the people God has called to be our pastor. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of of Christ. Notice though in verse 12 who it says is supposed to be doing the work of the ministry. It says for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Yes, our sort of paid staff should be doing the work of the ministry, but their primary job is helping you and me, equipping us to be able to do the work of the ministry. I was kind of joking a little bit earlier when I had said that Will had told me in case of delays be ready for Sunday, and I had said to him, well, don't we pay people for that? I was halfway joking when I said that to him. Point being, it's not our job to sit in the seats going, well, we pay you guys every week, so why don't you do the ministry? Because God didn't call them to do the ministry while we watch. 
He called you and I to do the ministry as they helped to equip us to do that. It says there in verse 13, "...till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or spiritually mature man, and in spiritually mature individual unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children." Toss to and fro. One of the things I love about kids is that how they will believe just about anything. Children are very naive. They're very trusting. They're very accepting, which can be a wonderful thing. As you, many of you have children of your own and understand what that relationship is like. But if that child never grows out of that, never matures beyond that, it can be a very dangerous and a very detrimental thing to that person as they become an adult. And the point is, spiritually speaking, we're not supposed to just be stuck at child level, where we're just kind of, oh, okay, and just sort of taking in everything that's told to us. Oh, sure, that must be right. Oh, maybe this is right over here. And we're sort of tossed back and forth. He says that we are not supposed to be like that, carried about with every wind of doctrine and slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. These giftings that are given to our leadership, these gifts that we have, are there for spiritual maturity. So that we as a body, as a spiritually mature body, can, what it says here, grow up into a perfect man, into the stature of the fullness of Christ. It says, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in Him to all things, which is the head, even Christ. And then verse 16, the idea of a physical body, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Each of our bodies have many parts. And the way it was designed by our Creator was that every part, both big and small, would do exactly what that part was designed to do, and thereby accomplish the goal of the body as a whole. But when one little piece, one little part, one little thing is not working right, the whole body knows it. The whole body is thrown off. Whatever that body was trying to accomplish, it's hampered in doing so. It might still be able to accomplish it, but it's a lot harder. It's a lot more painful. It's not nearly as easy. We have these nerves in our lower back, People talk about sciatic pain. And I always thought about that as like, oh, you must be old if that's, you know, something you've dealt with. I thought that until about three months ago. And then I realized that I must be old because I was starting to experience this thing. I went on a, what had always previously in my life been a harmless jog in the park for about 30 minutes. And when I got done, I felt fine. And when I got up the next morning, I didn't. And there was this thing in my lower back, and it didn't feel good. And I had never felt anything quite like it before. And then it didn't just stay there. It went all the way down the back of my leg, and it went into my knee. And pretty soon, every step I took was affected by this thing in my lower back. And then, as I would sit down, it didn't feel good. When I stood up, it didn't feel good. When I laid down the wrong way, it didn't feel good. And every single little piece of my life was affected by this dumb little whatever was going on in my lower back. 
And I realized afresh and anew that every little part of our body, when not working pro appropriately, messes up everything else that the body is trying to do. I went to work. I did what I was supposed to do. We accomplished tasks. I went home. I was a dad, not a very mobile one, but we tried to get through it. Still kind of trying to get through it. And it's one of these things that I thought, oh yeah, that's an old person problem. And now here I am. So, yay me. Point being, when every piece of the body is not functioning the way that the Creator intended, it throws off the body. And God uses that example here through the Apostle Paul on purpose. Because I think it's one that all of us can really understand in a real way. The point is that God has given us a job to do. He's equipped us to do that job. And yet if we won't do that job, it's the same way as some piece of our own physical body getting out of line, not working properly, and what it does to us physically. The same thing happens in our church as a body. If we as a group, as we, if we as a body do not find and then fulfill the job, the tasks, the roles that God has given us, we cannot, with true unity, accomplish the task that God has called us as a church, as a body to do. Every believer in our church body is absolutely necessary. If one part of the body isn't working, the whole body suffers. The reality is, based on what Paul was presenting to these people in Ephesians, is that every single one of them was necessary. Every single person in this body today is necessary. But if that, that body then, if this body now was to accomplish what God had called it to, it had to be done through a spirit of unity. That unity would not exist apart from the individuals pursuing Christ and pursuing that relationship for themselves. That unity would not take place apart from the people humbly walking with the Lord, seeing themselves the way that God sees Him, being meek, long-suffering, and forbearing. That unity and that, accomplish, that, that, that accomplishment of the goal, of the task that God had called that church to do and what God has called our church to do will not happen if we do not have all of the pieces working together as a whole to accomplish what God has called it to do. Our part in promoting the glory of God is tied directly in large part to our unity as a body of believers. One of the ways that we can quickly destroy what God is trying to do through this church is to be a group that is picking and fighting and, and having strife amongst ourselves. One of the quickest ways that we can negate our impact for the Lord right here is to get our focus off of the mission, off of the goal, and onto our own priorities and our own wants, our own desires, and what we're after. But one of the best ways that we can show Christ to a lost and dying world is to be a group of people that from the outside, it really doesn't make sense why this group would be all on the same page and all working together and all accomplishing the same thing, but yet we do it anyway. So when our community comes, when they see, when they interact with us, they don't see us as, as people. They see the God that this group of people serves. They see the Christ that this group of people is meant to uplift. That's what unity will do if it's properly acted on. So a couple of questions for us tonight. First and foremost, are you, am I, actively pursuing a relationship with God? 
And then the second question tonight, are we humbly seeking to put our gifts to work to further God's glory through the mission of this local body that God has called us to be a part of? Let me encourage you to do this. If you say, well, I don't really know exactly how or where or what I could do to kind of fit in to help with what God is doing here. Don't just kind of wait to for somebody to come find you and pull you along. And yeah, that might happen, but actively pursue that. Find one of the leaders. Find somebody who would know what's going on and say, where can I plug in? Where can I help? Where can I fit? Because the fact of the matter is we need everybody. This church needs all of its parts to function at its full potential. And so if you haven't pursued that as of yet, or maybe you have in the past, but it's been a little bit, could I encourage you to re-engage, to re-energize, refocus your efforts on what would God have you to do to be a part, small part, large part, medium-sized, in what God is doing here through this church. And so that we as a body of believers can forward God's cause right here in our community and in our city and in larger perspective around the world. Let's have a word of prayer. And then we will uh, spend some time tonight um, in, our, in, in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've gotten tonight to look at Ephesians chapter 4, just briefly, and, and, and get to see the importance of uh, what it is that you've called us to do, and that we need to be unified in order to do it. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us. I pray that you'd help me to be a person who is acting out on what your teaching was here in this passage, that I would be pursuing you, that we as individuals would be pursuing you, and that we would be looking to be actively involved in what you've called us to do, that we would recognize that it's not through us, not through anything that we've done, but through your grace that we have the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing. And I just pray that you'd help us to find our place, to, to plug into it, and that we could further your cause um, for whatever amount of time that you have left for us to do this here on earth. Pray that you be with our time now that we get to spend together in prayer, that it would be um, glorifying to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.